Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Today's episode fits nicely into some of the themes that we have covered recently, Cloud Foundry, Kubernetes, and the changing landscape of managed services. Sean McKenna works on all three of these things at Microsoft. We spent much of our time discussing the use cases of container instances versus Kubernetes. Container instances are individual managed containers, so you could spin up an application within a container instance without having to deal with the Kubernetes control plane. Container instances might be described as serverless containers, since you do not have to program against the underlying VM at all. And this begs the question, why would you want to use a managed Kubernetes service if you could just use individual managed containers? Sean explores this question and gives his thoughts on where this ecosystem is headed, but we by no means reached decisive answers. It's going to be an ongoing discussion as these different options evolve and we see what people use them for. Full disclosure, Microsoft, which Sean works at, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Sean McKenna is a principal program manager at Microsoft. Sean, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Yes, it's great to have you. You've been at Microsoft since the beginning of Azure. Describe the early days of when Microsoft started building a cloud business. Uh, so I've actually only joined Azure in the last couple of years, but I was when I was working elsewhere at Microsoft, I was a user of Azure. And so I sort of have seen the evolution of the platform. It's interesting. We sort of started out, Microsoft being a platform company, thinking of it as a, thinking of the cloud in terms of developer platforms. And so we started with what we now call cloud services, which is a effectively a platform as a service layer where you could create your application and it would would automatically spin up the underlying infrastructure for you and create the necessary networking components and load balancers and all of that. And it would all happen sort of behind the scenes, which was a great developer experience for for a particular customer profile. In those days, it was really .NET developers using Visual Studio. If you were if you fell into that camp, you had a, a great sort of end-to-end experience. But what we found over time, or uh, what the Azure team found over time was, hey, there's a much broader set of use cases that people are are looking to tackle with the cloud. And that's where, you know, Amazon in particular had had really driven this revolution around just infrastructure as a service. So having the ability to just use, you know, raw virtual machines and, and connect those up to to other basic components that the customers might have been used to running in a in an on-premises environment. And so that's where we went ahead and introduced Azure's IaaS uh, services. And that's really been what's driven it to, to take off to date. Although now we're sort of moving into the next phase and, and actually, interestingly, moving back up the stack with platform layers. So it's been, it's been kind of an interesting full circle evolution for Azure. Well, it's funny. That sounds similar to what Google's approach was because Google started right. out with App Engine. Yep. And App Engine was beloved by some people, but was probably a little too opinionated for 
the vast majority of use cases. It sounds like that's quite similar to what you had going on. Exactly. Yeah, I think both of those were in some ways sort of ahead of their time, that they were too high of an abstraction for what a lot of customers were looking to do at the time, which was just, hey, I want to pull the plug on my data center. I want to be able to move my existing applications, you know, what we refer to as sort of lift and shift, take my existing applications that are running in VMs um, or on bare metal in my in my on-premises environment and just move them into the cloud. That's all I want to do. I don't want to rewrite my applications. I don't want to replatform onto your specific offering. I just want to kind of get out of get out of my data center. So that was sort of one one part of it. And then the other was, of course, you know, there was specific things that you could do in those in, environments, right? There were specific, you know, frameworks and, and, and languages that were supported. And so if you were not, if you didn't fit into that particular bucket, then there wasn't really a great solution for you. And so that's where, you know, these IaaS offerings as just kind of base building blocks for uh, building applications, which are in most cases a lot harder for developers to to build applications on, but at least, you know, really anything you wanted to build, you could do with that, that base infrastructure. You work on a number of different products at Azure. One of them is Cloud Foundry. You also work on some Kubernetes-related products and these new container instances. Yep. And... I've been doing a number of shows recently about both Cloud Foundry and Kubernetes, and I'm trying to get an understanding of the business landscape, how enterprises are choosing between the different platform-as-a-service offerings. And it seems like for some period of time, really, they just opted for Cloud Foundry, and that was pretty much the only game in town if you're a bank and you want to be on a platform-like experience in the cloud, or if you're a telco. uh, These are the types of customers that I've I've seen the most uh, use Cloud Foundry. Mm -hmm. Are you getting a sense that they are... Kubernetes is is appealing to them that they're you know migrating away from Cloud Foundry towards Kubernetes or is it a complementary sort of thing? How has Kubernetes affected that uh, calculus for those big enterprises? Yeah, so certainly what we've seen is a lot of the big enterprises have historically liked Cloud Foundry for first of all the portability across uh, multiple environments, but also just having sort of an end-to-end opinionated developer experience that everything's sort of available out of the box, and you don't have to think about how to set up, you know, going from writing code to having it deployed in a cloud environment to doing day two operations, thinking about logging and upgrades and, and managing the infrastructure. So that's been something that that, that customer profile has has gravitated towards. I think with the, the rise of containers, there's been a lot of interest in uh, Kubernetes as kind of the de facto container orchestrator. Um, and in fact, now Cloud Foundry has incorporated Kubernetes into sort of its ecosystem. So now Cloud Foundry is, is actually an umbrella term for both the uh, sort of the application runtime, which is what was previously known as, as Cloud Foundry, and then the container runtime, which is actually a distribution of uh, Kubernetes. And so they're they're looking to, to bring those together under one roof because there's a lot of customers that are looking for some mixture of the two, right, where you might want to have your custom-built applications where you actually have developers inside the organization 
writing custom software and you want to have them be able to deploy that into a cloud environment without having to think about how do I actually go about containerizing this and, and managing it as a container, just have that, that sort of whole workflow uh, managed by the platform. And then there's other cases where you potentially want to take uh, off-the-shelf software, and which is now largely distributed in containers, and be able to deploy that into a Kubernetes environments. So those are kind of potentially working in, in concert with each other. The other thing that we are seeing is that the Kubernetes ecosystem is, is maturing and kind of moving up the stack, right? So I think over time, we'll see the full Kubernetes or full sort of CNCF stack actually provide potentially a platform experience that is, is more in line with what people have been able to historically get with something like Cloud Foundry. It's a question of whether it ever gets to the level of opinionation that something like Cloud Foundry has, but I think it's, it is starting to move a little bit further up that stack, such that the the difference in the, the level of technical expertise that you need to be able to, to run Kubernetes versus Cloud Foundry may actually reduce. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're referring to the Kubernetes platforms like OpenShift or Platform 9 or Rancher. There's a bunch of these different platform as a service that are just built on top of Kubernetes. That's yeah. That's one part of it. Is sort of the the commercial distributions of Kubernetes. There's also sort of all the pieces that are starting to to fill in around Kubernetes, right? So one of the things that you know, Brendan Burns, who's one of the founders of Kubernetes, who now uh, runs a container team at uh, Azure, has has always said is you know Kubernetes is not meant to be the end of, of the story, right? It was meant to be a, a sort of base building block that other things would get built on top of. And we're starting to see that now with the community rallying around things like Prometheus for logging, you know, Istio for, you know, service mesh. Um, so there's these pieces that are getting plugged in together that when you put them together, they're not, you know, parts of the Kubernetes core necessarily, but if everybody rallies around those being the sort of de facto standards in each of those particular areas, then you start to build a, a stack that is, you know, more of an end-to-end story. Whereas Kubernetes by itself, you know, it's the container hosting and orchestration, but it, there's a bunch of exercises left to the reader, right, to actually build applications and, and operate them in on day two. And so, you know, we're sort of still seeing that maturation process happening in that community. But I think it is there is a lot of consensus building around some of those tools. Help me understand the mindset of the telcos or the banks or the oil companies that would be making this kind of selection. Which giant, you know, wh- which paths am I going to start to move my infrastructure to? How much of the, these typical enterprises... Uh, how many of them or what percentage of their infrastructure have they moved to a PaaS? Like, is there a, is there a lot of migration that they are, are just is still entirely on legacy systems? Like, do you have a percentage in mind? Yeah, it really depends on the organization. Some have, have been fairly aggressive. I would say uh, most of them are still running a minority of their workloads in some of these environments. They're usually looking for low-hanging fruit that they can start to migrate over as kind of test cases and then slowly expand that through the organization. So I, I don't know, percentage-wise, maybe 10 20%. 
Oh, maybe a little bit more. Again, 10, 20% they have done the migration and they still have like 80% left. Yeah, that's what we see with with a fair number of customers. If you look at something like uh, Cloud Foundry, for example, typically what what customers will do is they'll get a Cloud Foundry environment set up. They'll get, they'll cherry pick a couple of applications that they want to, either existing applications that they want to move into that environment, or often if they're doing greenfield development, they want to build new applications with a sort of microservice oriented architecture and they'll target those to move into Cloud Foundry and kind of start to build the organizational muscle, both in terms of development as well as operations, using that environment and kind of make everybody comfortable with with that model. And then, you know, after they've they've got that up and running and it's it's been successful, they'll go move on to the next phase and sort of slowly move more and more applications over. That's typically what we see. It's not, you know, they're going to do a big bang, try to move everything over in, in three months, six months kind of thing. It's, it's you know, people want to feel comfortable with, with working with these new platforms because in a lot of cases, they're they're changing from a, an IT model that they've been using for 10, 15, 20 years. And so there's, you know, there's naturally some hesitation there to moving to an entirely new way of, of building and operating software. So when you're talking to these customers, since you're in charge of cloud, the Cloud Foundry at, at Azure, mm-hmm. but you're also heavily involved with the Kubernetes people, are you starting to talk to vendors where you're not sure how to advise them, or are you helping them pick between like Kubernetes versus Cloud Foundry, or are they, uh, how are those conversations going? Yeah, we definitely get a lot of customers that are asking for for guidance on sort of how to you know which model to to adopt. At this point, typically it comes down to sort of the maturity of the IT organization within in that enterprise. So, if a company is like I was saying before, looking for kind of an opinionated end-to-end platform for doing custom in-house development of applications in a cloud-native way, Cloud Foundry is probably the way that they want to go today because that's it does give them that sort of end-to-end story. They don't need to think about stitching together a bunch of different pieces around Kubernetes. Now, that's very much a, a point-in-time kind of conversation, and it may change over time, but Typically today, if somebody's looking for that opinionated end-to-end story, it's it's going to be one of those higher-level PaaS layers, so Cloud Foundry or in sort of the, the Microsoft landscape, something like Service Fabric, which is more of our, our .NET Windows-oriented platform. For customers who are potentially a little bit more advanced um, or at least trying to build up that muscle um, and are specifically attracted to some of the, the benefits of containers. So the sort of the idea of immutable infrastructure, being able to create those you know, application packages that are going to run consistently across environments and are willing to do a little bit more of the legwork um, in, in terms of actually building out a, a platform by pulling together those additional layers, some of, the, some of which I was referring to earlier in terms of logging and, and you know, service mesh and, and that sort of thing, then Kubernetes community is growing pretty rapidly. And there's, there's a lot of resources available there to, uh, to help those customers. But it is, it is something where they're going to have to do a little bit more work as it stands today. Mm-hmm. You work on several other projects, like mm-hmm. I said. Uh, one project is the Virtual Kubelet, which is a system for connecting 
Kubernetes to other APIs. So this is like if you are running a Kubernetes cluster and you want to connect to other cloud service APIs through a virtual kubelet, you can do that. Explain what a virtual kubelet is. Yeah, so a little bit of history. So in July of last year, we launched a service called Azure Container Instances. And the easiest way to to think of that is basically Kubernetes pods as a service. So the idea is you can run individual containers or what we call container groups, which is effectively a pod, so multiple containers that share a lifecycle and are uh, co-hosted on the same uh, machine and have access to sort of to each other via local network and so on. You can create those in the Azure cloud without having to provision any underlying infrastructure first, right? So today, if you want to run pods in Kubernetes to set up Kubernetes, you're creating a cluster of VMs that that you then have to manage at, at some level. And so the idea behind ACI is I can just deploy pods or container groups um, directly into Azure without having to, to do that. And as part of the design of ACI, one of the things that we were kind of wrestling with is, okay, you know, when we launched this service, which is, you know, allowing you to run containers without underlying infrastructure that where we do, you know, per second billing, there's a number of different things that are quite attractive about it. Naturally, we're going to start to get questions about, okay, how do I scale out? How do I, you know, create a number of, of replicas of, of these containers? How do I do upgrades to them? How do I, you know, manage availability? Kind of all of the things that you think about a container orchestrator doing, so something like Kubernetes. And the decision we made was, rather than go and add all of those capabilities to ACI, to that core product, which is ultimately always going to be something that is specific to Azure. It's a core part of the Azure infrastructure that we would work sort of in conjunction with Kubernetes and allow Kubernetes to be the orchestration layer. It's a fairly mature uh, orchestration API. There's a lot of activity in, in that community. And so we want to actually be able to, to bring those two things together so you can get the best of ACI with the best of, of orchestration in Kubernetes. And so we launched, in conjunction with, with the launch of ACI, we created a project called the ACI Connector. Um, and the idea behind that was to allow a, a Kubernetes cluster to have this kind of virtual node that would allow you to schedule pods into ACI in addition to scheduling them uh, on VMs. And when we built that project, it was ACI specific. So we literally just created one that would that would only enable you to uh, deploy uh, pods into ACI. Um, but after we launched it, there was a bunch of interest from other prov- similar providers. So Hyper.sh, for example, which is you know one of the leaders in this kind of serverless container market, actually went and built sort of an equivalent connector that would allow customers to target target hyper instead of ACI. Um, and so we saw this kind of interest in, in this, this model of a hybrid between you know, traditional Kubernetes cluster and these sort of serverless containers or pods as a service offerings. And so we decided to go ahead and sort of up-level um, our ACI connector project into something that would be a pluggable framework so that different providers could actually plug into into that model. So that's where what we launched at uh, KubeCon was the the open source sort of upstream project for virtual kubelet. 
along with a provider for ACI, um, and we're working with Hyper. They're, they're in the process of adding a provider for Hyper, and we've heard from a number of other companies, both at KubeCon and, and subsequently, that are interested in, in adding those providers. That's basically the idea is to allow you to have a kubelet, a which is not a traditional kubelet, in the sense that it's not an agent running on a single VM, but is representing kind of a, a, an agent that is, or a node that has infinite capacity. So what's an example for how I would use the virtual kubelet? Yeah, so we expect there's kind of eventually going to be two primary ways that it gets used. The first one is the ability to spill over capacity into something like ACI. So if you imagine today, if you're running a Kubernetes cluster, you've got a set of VMs. You know, Part of the value that you're getting from using Container Orchestrator is you're getting you know, pretty high utilization because you've got this, you know, a sophisticated scheduler that can map the workloads that you're um, looking to schedule onto the set of resources that you have and, and make sure that you're packing those in uh, as efficiently as possible. But typically, you're still going to leave a fair bit of capacity on each of those VMs for the potential that you might get an external spike of traffic. If you're, say, a you know, retail website that needs to be prepared for some flash sale, or if you have a like a regular batch job that needs to run at the end of the week, the end of the month, or maybe you're doing, um, you're running Jenkins inside of your cluster and you've got kind of spiky traffic as a result of when you've got um, builds that need to run. And so you keep that additional capacity around for when um, those workloads are going to come in. But all of the time when those, those things are not happening, you've effectively got, you know, wasted resources. Um, so you're, you're paying for something that you're not using. The idea behind the virtual kubelet and and things like ACI is you can connect that into that cluster and use that as effectively like your overdraft protection if when you need that additional capacity. So that allows you to to really have your your VM based cluster be the environment for running your sort of standard workload, your average workload, drive up that utilization to 80-90%. And if you need it, have that uh, additional capacity come via the virtual kubelet from something like ACI. Uh, So that's sort of one scenario uh, that we're looking at. The other one is we think eventually that uh, a lot of customers are just going to want to run effectively like a serverless Kubernetes, right? Where you can have Kubernetes scheduling pods into infrastructure where you don't necessarily see all of the individual VMs. And so in that case, you would purely be using a you know, Kubernetes hosted control plane, um, such as you know, the Azure Container Service that we offer, or others uh, have uh, equivalent offerings, um, but then have the actual hosting environment be managed by, like in this case, Azure, um, where the, the infrastructure would be hidden from the customer. You can just focus on building and, and managing your containers, which is quite a nice model, because if you think about it today, in purely in terms of scaling, there's always this kind of two-level scaling problem where when you uh, need to add additional capacity to your application, your containerized application running Kubernetes, you would initially scale out the number of pods. You'd use the horizontal pod autoscaler to add additional capacity that way. But eventually, you're going to run up against the limits of the infrastructure. So how many VMs you have to actually schedule those pods. And so you're always having to do this sort of back and forth dance to make sure you have sufficient infrastructure to, to manage the scaling in and out of, of those pods. 
Whereas if you move to a model where it's all kind of managed for you, you can purely think about it at the at the container or the pod level. So that world in the future with the serverless Kubernetes idea, is that the same thing as the container instances? Well, so container instances is the the hosting environment for the individual pods. You can think of it as... yes. And so the, when I talk about sort of the serverless Kubernetes, it is the Kubernetes API, right? So thinking in terms of Kubernetes deployments and, and services and pods and all of the Kubernetes constructs, um, but the actual runtime hosting environment would be something like ACI. So I would still be using, you know, kubectl and, and, mm. and the Kubernetes API, but rather than those pods landing on VMs that I have to manage and think about scaling and all of that, they would just land in, you can sort of think of it as this sort of PaaS uh, in the sense that the infrastructure is hidden, but there's still, you're still managing everything through Kubernetes. So you can, you know, do, you know, kubectl get pods and see all of the pods that are running. You could do, you know, rolling upgrades with with deployments, all the things that you would expect to be able to do with Kubernetes. It's just that rather than those pods running in VMs, they're running in this kind of hidden infrastructure. So in that world, what differs from that world where you have this uh, serverless control plane that's managing Azure container instances versus a managed Kubernetes offering? Yeah, so when we talk about managed Kubernetes today, and this is the, the case for, for other managed Kubernetes offerings as well, is the, the management piece is effectively the master nodes, right? So the in a Kubernetes cluster, you've got the master nodes and then the agents, right, where the masters are running the API server, the scheduler, etcd, all of the, the kind of the brains of the cluster. And so managed Kubernetes services take those components and and move them into the IaaS provider's infrastructure. So in our case, you know, move them into infrastructure that we manage in in Azure. But you're still you still have VMs in your subscription in your account that are the the target of those deployments. Now those VMs may themselves be managed at some level, but you're, you are still looking at the VM as the unit of billing, as the unit of scaling, and to some degree as, as something that you need to, to manage. If you move to a model that is sort of a purely serverless Kubernetes kind of model, you still have the management piece that, that runs inside the, the IIS provider's infrastructure. So that part doesn't change. What changes is that the target of your deployment is not the set of VMs in your subscription, but is something like ACI. And so you would, in terms of the resources you would see in, in Azure, for example, you would just see the containers or just see the pods as a, as a first-class IIS resource. Right. Rather than if you if you set up a, a Kubernetes cluster today in Azure and, and go into the Azure portal, for example, or use the CLI, there's no way for me to see the set of pods that I've deployed because mm. those are sort of hidden inside of, of Kubernetes in a in an That's even on AKS. Yes. It's it those pods are effectively living inside of VMs. And mm. so from an Azure perspective, all I see are VMs, right? Mm. Um, and I have to go through through Kubernetes to, to see the actual pods. In a serverless world, I would, I'd be able to go through the Kubernetes API and the, and the kubectl CLI, and typically that's what I would do. But from an IaaS perspective, I would see my 
pods rather than any VMs. And that that would be my unit of billing and my unit of scale. And so now the, the infrastructure, the underlying VMs just get hidden away, which we sort of think of as, as just the next natural step in IaaS, right? So with, with IaaS today, you know, we will give you virtual machines that sit on top of physical infrastructure that you don't ever see, right? And so in the same way here, we're giving you containers as an IaaS primitive that sit on top of infrastructure that you don't see. So it's kind of just a natural evolution of, of virtualization and of, of infrastructure as a service that we think makes sense in, in the context of something like Kubernetes. What surprises me is that this abstraction of the container instance was not available like two years ago when like when Docker started getting popular, there was not a way to buy and provision a single container. There was Heroku, which yep. you know you can get dynos, which I think a dyno always was a container. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that? Why didn't we have the the major cloud providers offering the single container instance as a purchasable abstraction? I think it was because a lot of the, the container orchestration platforms were looking to operate with a lowest common denominator kind of environment, right? So. Azure Container Instances is something that is effectively a service that we provide in Azure that you wouldn't be able to pick up and take to your on-prem environment, for example. Whereas the the orchestration platforms wanted to be able to run either directly on on physical hosts or on VMs in your on-prem environment or in public cloud providers, and so make sure that those those work those APIs work everywhere. And so that was the natural place to start. But I think what we're going to see now is that, you know, every cloud, at least every cloud provider will likely have some kind of offering that is purely container oriented. I think it's just a, a natural evolution. So everybody wanted to, to make sure that their their offering was worked in, in all environments. But now we'll start to see um, people sort of moving up the stack. And when that is unavailable purchasing and use you know deployment model of this serverless kubernetes this or serverless containers you know container instances that you can just purchase one by one it's a very appealing abstraction for many applications that i can think of where does that lead leave something like your managed container service the uh, aks like who will be using that in in four or five years? Do you think there'll be more platforms that will evolve, that will develop, that you know people will will deploy their own platforms on top of AKS and uh, and then sell whatever is the higher level abstraction that they build on top of that? Well, we certainly expect that to happen, but I don't think the whole idea of the virtual kubelet project is that we think things like ACI and AKS are complementary rather than competitive. And so we think there's a set of use cases for ACI standalone that we see people doing today where they're, you know, spinning up CI jobs or they're doing kind of simple task automation or very simple applications. But as soon as they move into more complex applications or they want to have some of the things I was mentioning earlier in terms of scaling and and rolling upgrade and service discovery and all of the kind of the things that that orchestration APIs provide, that's when they want to move over to 
something like Kubernetes in, in, in our case, in the context of AKS, but they still might want to have the actual hosting be not in VMs, but just in, in managed infrastructure, right? So we think there's this kind of marrying of the capabilities of a, an orchestration API with the hosting model of hosting and billing model of ACI. So you you might be building a, you know, multi-service, you know, microservice oriented application, and you're deploying that as like a Kubernetes deployment or using a Helm chart or, or what have you. So all the things you would typically do with Kubernetes, but have those those pods ultimately de- be deployed in ACI and pay by the second for however long they're running and not have to think about scaling out the set of VMs. So we really think that that long-term, those things continue to be complementary, where we're just swapping out the, the core hosting infrastructure of VMs to being this sort of higher level abstraction. Hmm. In the build-out of the managed the container instances, were there any mm-hmm. specific technical challenges to work out that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, one of the biggest things is we are providing full hypervisor isolation for these containers running in ACI. And so making sure that we could run them in managed infrastructure that we provide, which is sort of naturally multi-tenant, but have them be hypervisor bounded and but still give you the expected sort of startup times that you would you know come to expect from containers so we've been working with both the, the windows team in terms of uh, hyper-v containers and being able to take advantage of some of the the capabilities that they've added there and some of the performance improvements and then we've also been working uh, on the linux side with uh, Intel Clear containers, or what's now been rebranded to Kata containers, uh, where the idea is to have kind of the best of both worlds of what you would have with a traditional VM, where you have uh, strong isolation uh, between environments running on the same physical infrastructure, and containers where you have this you know, much smaller images and, and much faster startup times. And so making sure that we were able to provide that hypervisor isolation was you know one of the big the big challenges and and something that we had to kind of go down a number of paths to make sure that you know, in terms of network access and and storage and and kind of how we do logging that we had that clear isolation because that's something that you know customers are are looking for if they're going to run these applications in this hidden infrastructure they they need to feel confident that we are actually isolating those those environments and, and providing them equivalent level of of isolation that they would get from a VM as the world moves towards this world where people are using kubernetes more and more and kubernetes is on all the cloud providers it's a managed service that's present everywhere how does that change the calculus of a cloud provider? What's in the future for a cloud provider strategy? Yeah, so we kind of see it as, you know, eventually, you know, managed Kubernetes services are just going to be table stakes. And then it's it's not going to be something that any individual cloud provider can differentiate on uh, on its own. And so we need to provide additional value. We need to, you know, make it attractive for for developers who want to, um, or you know, organizations that want to build on top of Kubernetes to come to Azure. So there's obviously, in our case, you know, 
the main benefits of our IaaS that we typically talk about are, um, you know, regional coverage. Um, we've got the largest number of, of regions worldwide. And so for large enterprise customers who are looking to build out global deployments and potentially deploy applications into mainland China or into Germany um, and, and deal with um, data sovereignty or privacy regulations in those countries, we, we offer a, a great model for doing that. We also expect that one of the things that that we will do is really build on our legacy of building great tools for developers and really democratizing technologies. So we're making a lot of investments in providing great tooling uh, for Kubernetes. Um, So we are now the stewards as a result of our acquisition of Deus. We're now the stewards of the Helm project. That same team has built out Draft, which is about making the developer interloop for for targeting Kubernetes uh, much easier. Tools like Brigade, which is event-driven pipelines uh, in Kubernetes, and and Kashti, which allows you to do sort of CI-CD kind of models. There's a number of different tools there, building integrations with things like VS Code. So really trying to provide that end-to-end developer experience where we will naturally make it the easiest way to, or the, you know, the easiest environment to target to be Azure. And so that something natural for developers who are targeting Kubernetes to deploy their applications uh, into Azure. So we don't expect to, to really differentiate to a large extent on the, on the core managed Kubernetes service. It's going to be all the things that, that come around it. Mm. Do you think that like the, the clouds are going to become increasingly differentiated because everybody is on Kubernetes? Because, I mean, we've had, it feels like several years of, you know, the, the core offerings were were fairly similar from, from cloud to cloud. Uh, but it's, it feels like now things are starting to get more differentiated. You're starting to see more exotic services across the different cloud providers. I take you think that'll continue. Yeah, I think there's there's going to be a mixture, right? So in the context of Kubernetes, like I say, I think at this point now we have announcements or, or running services from the three major cloud providers around managed Kubernetes services. So that will be fairly consistent. In fact, you know, CNCF has a Kubernetes certification program specifically to ensure that these different distributions and these different services are consistent to allow customers to, to make their applications portable. So then, yeah, it's going to be up to the, the cloud providers to determine how they want to uh, differentiate beyond that. I think we're going to see a mixture of consistent a set of services. So if you think about things like managed database services, right, we have in Azure, we have a managed SQL Server, and as well as a managed MySQL and managed Postgres. So those are, at least in the case of MySQL and Postgres, those are standard open APIs that I expect there's, you know, there either exist or will be services, equivalent services from other cloud providers. And so that's something you can take advantage of if you want to have your application be portable. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we're going to build uh, differentiated services. So things like Cosmos DB, which is our globally distributed NoSQL database, which itself has uh, a set of open APIs that sit on top of it, but has differentiated capabilities. And so that's going to be, I think, the decision of individual customers where they want to go deep with a particular cloud provider because they see that there's differentiated value there versus trying to keep their their applications and their operational model consistent so that they can move them between environments. We see kind of a mixture of those two types of customers with different approaches. So let's say I'm a developer 
that wants to take advantage of exotic services on all the different cloud providers. Does mm-hmm. that mean that I will more than likely end up spinning up a Kubernetes cluster on those different cloud providers as well so that I can also have bespoke services on those uh, you know on it running in my own containers on those cloud providers that are interfacing with the exotic services like maybe I've got a Kubernetes Kubernetes cluster on Azure that is interfacing with Cosmos DB because I want that and then I've got a Kubernetes cluster on Amazon because I I want to interface with some Amazon managed services do you think that's a, a viable model or is it more likely that we'll just have a single Kubernetes cluster on one of these cloud providers. And if you want to interface with an exotic service, you just hit their REST API. What's your vision for that? I think typically we'll see customers deploying Kubernetes clusters in the cloud provider where they want to connect to to those services. I mean, you can, you can deploy pretty small uh, clusters and you have the... Uh, the consistency and the mutability of uh, containers such that those containers running in those different environments will operate the same way. Um, and so you don't necessarily need to run everything in, in one environment. It also typically makes things easier in terms of you know, networking and, and security to have those um, services running in in the same environment. And so I, I expect that there's, there's going to be that kind of model of you run a set of applications and it may be the same application running in uh, different cloud environments or more likely, I think, from what we've seen with customers is they kind of choose the types of applications that, that make sense to run in different cloud providers depending on uh, the services that they want to take advantage of or things like I mentioned with you know regional coverage where they've, if they've got some application that is uh, specific to, say, the German market or the the Chinese market that they might run those in in Azure because we have uh, coverage in those regions. But yeah, I think it's it's going to be mostly that you'll you'll run your application your sort of stateless applications in that cloud provider and connect to that cloud provider services. This is one thing that I think is understated about the idea of multi cloud is that people are going multi cloud sometimes to take advantage of the upside of being on a different cloud. And I think the the common narrative or what I've heard the most is that you want to be on multi-cloud because it's like you want to be ready to lift and shift or you want to be yeah. uh, disaster recovery tolerant. Maybe that's true, but honestly, I've seen much more of the former rather than the latter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we hear we do hear, you know, customers who, who are thinking about multi-cloud in the sense of they're going to be doing kind of like, you know, per second arbitrage of, of moving applications between different cloud providers based on cost and, and things like that. But I think that's, in a lot of cases, that, that kind of model is a bit of a pipe dream. And, and in any case, it's going to be a pretty small Although it was that was everybody's pipe dream at the like when the yeah. other when the other you know when all these cloud providers started standing up people were like oh who's going to build the the market between them and that never really yeah. happened because everything went to no, near zero <laughs> yeah and I mean by virtue of the the competition being so fierce like the the costs don't typically get too far out of alignment uh, at least not enough to warrant trying to you know really make significant return from from moving things between them. So yeah, I agree. I think most of the time customers are choosing 
Uh, if they are indeed doing multi-cloud, it's because they they see different values from the different cloud providers, and that's great, right? I mean, I think having a a world in which there's a a set of things that are consistent. You know, we're all going to provide VMs, we're all going to provide some uh, standards-based data services. Potentially, we're all going to provide containers as a service at some point, but then we're also going to go and and do differentiated things, and we're going to do you know interesting innovations, and we'll see kind of what what things the market reacts to. Um, I think that's that's kind of the perfect perfect competitive environment, frankly. Can you give me a little bit of insight into how product development works at Azure, like the, on the cloud stuff that you work on? Just because I do a lot of shows with. Uh, you know, products that are easier to think about how you would structure a, an engineering team around, like shows where I'm doing something like uh, about a, a dating a dating app. Like I did some shows about Tinder and some shows about Thumbtack, which is a marketplace. And it's kind of easy to understand, okay, there's some operational people, there's some uh, back-end engineers, there's some front-end engineers. It's complicated services, but it's kind of straightforward when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Compared to developing services on top of a cloud provider, my understanding of how to manage that kind of breaks down. Maybe you can give me some insight mm-hmm. on uh, how management and strategy works for the teams that you work on. Yeah, so... I mean, organizationally, we have teams in terms of kind of the core uh, infrastructural components. So compute, storage, networking, we have teams that kind of own those as base infrastructure layers. And then they're sort of further subdivided based on largely sort of around the, the architecture. They have to work together to, to provide that base uh, set of capabilities. And then on top of that, building higher level services like ACI, that's actually more of a traditional kind of product team where you know we've got myself and a couple other folks as as product management and then we have an engineering team of about 10 people uh, at this point where we're just you know managing a, a backlog of, of items uh, based on customer demand and kind of where we want to take the service and we do you know sort of monthly planning and sprints and really drive that service kind of end-to-end. And so it, it sort of depends on, on the level of the, the stack that you're at, how, how the teams operate. Mm. Okay, makes sense. Uh, so last question. I did a show with Brendan Burns and also a show with Joe Bita, and they both said something similar that really struck me, which is they articulated this idea that there's going to be this different future where people can write, uh, well, at least this is the, w- the way Brennan put it, is write their own, you know, smaller software teams write and distribute proprietary software using Kubernetes as that distribution layer. So I could sell, maybe I, maybe I create my own database and I sell mm-hmm. it on Kubernetes through Helm, which is, you know, that that's something that doesn't really uh, exist in, in software today. I mean, you know, if you buy software, you're mostly buying it uh, as a subscription, you're buying software as a service, but you can imagine just paying a flat fee for a binary, and then you're you're paying for the ongoing uh, cost of running it on a cloud provider, which would be de minimis compared to the the cost of subscription cost of a, a SaaS company. So, mm-hmm. it sounds like you agree with that that potential future. Do you have any any ideas for what the roadmap looks like to getting there? 
Yeah, so that's something that we're looking at uh, currently in the context of uh, the Azure marketplace. It's, it's still fairly early days, I would say. We don't have uh, concrete uh, timelines for when we might have something there. But yeah, we, I mean, we do have, we have a pretty rich marketplace today for software being distributed in VMs. But what we're seeing is a lot of ISVs uh, being interested in in doing distribution via containers. And so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there for for thinking about different licensing models and different pricing models for, you know, for ISV software that might be running alongside the the, the main application in in a Kubernetes cluster uh, that the customer manages. So, yeah, definitely a, a huge area of of opportunity and and one where I think we can provide a lot of monetization opportunities for um, for ISVs. So it's pretty exciting. Do you think that'll look like a cross cloud marketplace? Because my understanding of the cloud marketplaces as they stand today is it's a little bit fragmented like the you know my if i buy something in an azure marketplace it it might be i might not be able to buy that in the aws marketplace or the google marketplace and which would kind of make sense because it's a different vm styles that i would be installing it to but with with kubernetes it would be a little more standardized you you think that that would create a, a better environment for distribution yeah, I mean, th- this might be one of the cases where having some abstraction that sits across the cloud providers is is actually beneficial. So having a, a common pricing and, and licensing model that can be sort of arm's length from any individual environment, and maybe even it goes beyond cloud providers, maybe you can run those that ISV software in a Kubernetes environment that you're running in your own on-premises data center. Yeah, the adoption of Kubernetes by the community broadly, I think, opens up a whole bunch of these opportunities because you now do have that consistent higher level abstraction that that now you can go and, and build on top of. So this is just one of, of many opportunities, I think, for, for new ways of distributing software to, to happen. Okay, Sean. Well, uh, great talking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation and lots of fascinating insights on the business implications and the technical implications of Kubernetes. So thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Wow. 